Conflict is an important part of human relationship. I mean, if you don't have conflict, can you ever really get to know somebody? And if we don't discuss issues that highlight where there's polarization, then we never really have an opportunity to learn how to transform sex and violence love to conditional love to empathetic and compassionate love. Those are all aspects of the creative process. People always go into chaos whenever any of their ideas are challenged because in order to embody a new concept, you have to let go of the old one. And the conflict that we often generate within ourselves that is a necessary part of the change process. And that's why I say, you know, you have to have spiritual courage to really grow spiritually because if you really want to take guidance from your soul, you have to be ready to realize that many of the things that you're asking for guidance on, your ego has some kind of an addiction to or an investment in. That is Paul Check, and this is episode 275 of Wellness Force Radio, where we discover the physical and emotional intelligence to live life well. What's up, everyone? It's Josh Trent. Welcome back to the show today. We've got a hands-down absolute blockbuster for the return of Paul Check on the podcast. This episode was recorded live in Austin, Texas, when I was traveling, doing podcasts, moderating panels at the PaleoFX conference. Question, do you travel? Do you travel a lot for work or play? I feel like the number one thing for us to stay on point is the way we eat, move, and sleep when we travel. And I'll share the biggest difficulty I've found with myself and most humans is food. We can move and sleep, but sourcing the right micronutrients when traveling, it does not have to be so challenging anymore. <laughs> this is why I take my Organifi green juice, my single serve packets on the road with me. I throw them in my duffel bag, my overnight bag. These help me fight off the germs and boost my immune system to give me some energy through plant adaptogens. This is the coolest part. Where else can you get organic wheatgrass, moringa, spirulina, chlorella, matcha with red beetroot and turmeric, plus prebiotic fibers in a single serve packet? Unless you're a professional gardener and you have all these things in your backyard, Go the easy route instead. Make it easier on yourself to get your micronutrients and your greens. Pick up the green juice packets that I personally travel with every single trip, which has been quite a lot lately. These packets are a huge lifesaver for me. Go to Organifi.com forward slash wellness force. Make sure you use code wellness force because you get 20% off, which is a deep discount. Share this code with your family, your friends, so they can get the hookup as well. There's no limit on this code. You can travel light and you can have your micronutrients. Wellness Force is the code for 20% off. It's funny, Paul came over before the podcast and he came into the Airbnb. He saw my Neurohacker supplements, the Aura Ring, and then he saw the Organifi. And I'll tell you, the Organifi is the only product that is 100% certified organic that Paul and I can actually agree on. It's healthy for people. So this is also quasi Paul Check approved. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is another reason why I love Organifi. It's the only thing that Paul and I could nod both of our heads to. And it was just over one year ago that Wellness Force spent seven hours at Paul's Heaven House here in San Diego. We talked about how the revolution in wellness was coming last year. Well, today for episode 275 with Paul, the revolution is here. This revolution, which inside of that title, there is the word love. Paul shares with us in this show why conflict is such an important part of human relationships why spiritual growth helps us to lead to the death of the ego and the expansion of self, the importance of spiritual courage to help you take the next step into your personal growth. We also dive deep into plant medicines, the ceremony, the considerations, and the safety and container, as well as a special story from Paul about the birth of his son, Mana. This is one of my favorite stories. We also explore the difference between the biological souls of humans and the group souls of animals 
And how do we understand this physical and emotional intelligence? It's what we always explore at the intersection on this show. How do we understand this from Paul's perspective, the physical and the emotional that powers our decisions and all of our ways of being? Make sure you dive deeper into the four doctors, Dr. Quiet, Diet, Happiness, and Movement, the four pillars of Paul's book, The Last Four Doctors You'll Ever Need, linked over at the show notes page at wellnessforce.com forward slash 275. And on that same page, you can see the full YouTube videos mastered by Colin from Liebold Media, a special two-part series where you can watch Paul and I go deep in person in Austin. As you know, Paul has a powerful personality and he tends to explain questions three layers deeper than most guests on the show. So I invite you to have an open mind, stay in your body with an open heart, and then share this episode with someone that you care about that gets to have a wellness revolution of their own. All right, now it's time for the deep breath as we drop in with the one, the only, Paul Check. This is such a cool moment for me. Uh, it was almost a year ago at your house. We were just trying to figure we that out on the way seven, in the car. seven hours at your house. Yeah. And just one of the most powerful shows we've ever done, like more downloads, more attention than anything, Paul. So thank you for being back, man. This is one of my yeah. favorite things in the world. To just I have love it. real conversations. You know, I've been having more fun since I started my podcast and I have in a long time. Yeah. I really do better in that medium. You know, I don't know how many of my podcasts you've listened to, but I usually go two to three Multiple. hours. Yeah. Multiple. I want to really talk to people and get into stuff. I don't want the, the, the uh, edutainment, fluffy stuff. You know, the feedback I'm getting from people is, is very moving to them and like, oh my God, I really feel like I know that person now. And it's so funny because I've had my own instructors listen to podcasts with other instructors and go, oh wow, I feel like I know Nicole or Matthew or whoever so much better yeah. now or Warren, you know? Yep. And and I'm like, yes, that's what it's for. And, um, and I, you know, like my podcast with Sherry Tenpenny on vaccinations was a ball buster. You know, it made headline news five times now, in two times in England and three times in Australia. What'd they say? Paul Check's a dangerous person that's uh, spreading uh, stuff about non-anti-vaccination. But it was because a famous chef who... I did a podcast with him on his show in Australia, Pete Evans. He's kind of like uh, the Jamie Oliver of Australia. Is he Australia. otherwise known as the paleo chef? I think so, yes. Yeah, Pete Evans. Yeah. He's talented. Yes. Yep. And so he interviewed me, and and um, and he really liked my podcast with Sherry Tenpenny, so he put it out on his like forum, one of his forums, like Twitter or something like that, and he's got, you know, like a million followers, over a million followers. Yeah. And so... It went viral, and then the next thing you know, the media pick it up, and because he's so famous, they started attacking him for promoting my podcast. But within minutes of those headlines popping up, my downloads went up like crazy. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, baby. Well, and there's no bad media. Like, controversy sells. And so yeah. I've always, for 30-plus years, man, I've known you. You've, you've been putting out in the wellness industry quality yeah. information. And sometimes in order to meet people where they are, we got to use controversy. Oh, of course. Do you yeah, find that your videos on YouTube, the more controversial you make the headlines, the more downloads, the more attention, the more healing you're going to produce? Yeah. You know, it, it, conflict is an important part of human relationship. I mean, if you don't have conflict, can you ever really get to know somebody? Yeah, man. And if we don't discuss issues that 
uh, highlight where there's polarization, then we never really have an opportunity to learn how to transform um, sex and violence love to conditional love to empathetic and compassionate love because we those are all aspects of the creative process. If you want to create something, look, if you want to build a more beautiful apartment than this, you're going to have to tear this one down. If you want to build a new house, you're going to have to cut the trees down and get a bulldozer out to make you a driveway and a place for your foundation. And, and unfortunately, that means lots of birds, bees, and deer and raccoons lose their home. Yeah. You know, so, you know, that that's well described in the Hindu trinity of Brahma, the creator god, Vishnu, the maintainer, and Shiva, the great uh, destroyer, but it's the transformer, right? If you don't... Pe people always go into chaos whenever any of their ideas are challenged because in order to embody a new concept, you have to let go of the old one that is uh, somehow a limiting way of relating relative to the new concept. So there's always a, a kind of a, a chaos, right? Imagine, you know, if you think God's going to burn you in hell and you've been programmed to believe that all your life and all of a sudden you, you know, find yourself really suffering from that belief and you meet someone like me that teaches you a much broader concept of God, even though you're nodding your head listening to a guy like me and it makes complete sense well, the next time you have the urge to touch your genitals or have sex with someone you're not married to, there's that chaos because the child has been raised to believe that. So you've got your whole lifetime of believing in this God that'll burn in hell, but now you've got this new concept to work with, but it comes face to face with very established neural networks and belief and behavior patterns. And that's really why... Um, spiritual growth is something that's a lot more talked about than actually engaged in because to grow spiritually you have to be first of all anytime you engage in a spiritual growth process it's death to the ego because the more you grow spiritually the more porous the ego gets to the wants feelings needs of other people the importance of nature in other words your concept of self expands very greatly but the ego is really inherently trying to control and create the illusion of safety and convince itself that it knows what the outcome is going to be of this investment or if I leave right now I'm going to show up to this meeting on time but mm -hmm. it forgets about this thing called traffic and accidents and weather so all of a sudden it's going to be five minutes late and the ego's just freaking out but you know, the the process of spiritual growth and development is one that says, well, you hit traffic and, and everyone else does too. And you text somebody a message and say, hey, I'm stuck. There's a car accident on the side of the road. I'll be there as quick as I can. But someone who hasn't reached that point of relaxation of the need to control. Yes, you know, like a spiritual maturity. She shows up at the meeting and they're sweaty and they got cold hands and they're nervous that now maybe they've done something wrong and, you know, their mind just goes bananas doing all that stuff. So there's the chaos that we have to go through and the conflict that we often generate within ourselves that is a necessary part of the change process. And that's why I say, you, you know, you have to have spiritual courage to really grow spiritually because if you really want to take guidance from your soul, you have to be ready to realize that many of the things that you're asking for guidance on, your ego has some kind of an addiction to or an investment in, and your soul 
might trick you, not trick you to trick you, but your soul might trick you because you might find that your soul has a much broader sense of right and wrong than your ego ever could conceive of. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the soul always knows, though? And obviously, we're connected to many lives. I mean, you wrote an email to me, actually, when I was in Thailand, and it was about your son, Mana, who used to be a woman in Thailand. Tell me this story. Like, I was in Thailand reading this email from you, just thinking, is Paul actually telling me a legitimate story that came to him in a ceremony? Like, when did this message come through that your son was a woman in Thailand in a past life? This is a bit of a story, and there's some interesting caveats to it well first of all when angie and i first got together i was 50 and um you know we went through quite a a a period together where there was a lot of intense intimate experiences and in this falling in love process she she had never had the desire to have children before but all of a sudden she found herself really wanting children and I was very clear that I didn't want children you know I'm like I've already have I already have a son I Paul Jr will be 40 in September so I've kind of been the on the daddy train for a while yeah and I know how much is involved in it you know and and I really had become exhausted by the time I was 50 of constantly engaging so many people and the pressure of running a big business and just well, the institute is a child in itself. It is. It's a. Yeah. It's a. What's a? It's a large family, right? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people to deal with. And you know, at one time I had 20, 20 or twenty-one instructors traveling around the world, and uh, I think we had twenty staff at the institute and. You know, I had a big overhead. I mean, I, I was just under a lot of pressure, and I'd reached the point where I needed to do something just for me. I was tired of trying to save the world, so to speak. And so right when Angie and I got together was when I was right in the throes of a midlife crisis, which really kind of came on with gangbusters at my 50th birthday. It's like... I was just at the end of my rope with many things and I'd felt like I'd created a monster that was now consuming me in the name of health. And I'm like, Oh my God, this I've created the most painful existence for myself, uh, devoting myself to keeping the, everyone in the world healthy. Like, you know, do you know what I and teach? Your health but, was suffering. Well, it's just, I'd lived on airplanes for 20 years and you know, I'm, we're a worldwide organization. Penny and I were making it around the world twice a year, every year for many, many years. And, Sometimes I'd be, one time I lectured, I did 47 lectures in six countries in six weeks. And mine are not just walk in for an hour. Some of these things are like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten day courses, right? So point being is by the time I met Angie, I just had no desire to be a father again. And I said to her, I said, if you really want children, then I will maintain our relationship with you while you look for another man that can serve that role for you and i said you know we can still be friends and still share intimacy and and our love but i can't support being a daddy again because i don't have it in me she looked at me and she said no you don't understand i never wanted kids before you and i met i want your children i'm like oh boy here we go so I said to her, I, I just, I'm not ready, you know, maybe just give me some time to rest and see how it shakes down. And so one morning she comes out of the bathroom with a very odd, freaked out look on her face. And I'm like, hmm, what's going on? 
she holds up a pregnancy test. She says, I'm pregnant. And the other thing is... <laughs> That's Penny, when shit got real. Well, the thing yeah. that I've missed out is that Penny said, look, Penny, Penny's intuition was, and she'd never said this to me before, and you know, I've had an open relationship with my wife now for 22 years, so she said, I need you to be very careful because if Angie gets pregnant, I don't know if I can stay. She goes, I don't think I'm ready to deal with a child. And she, Penny got her tubes tied when we first got married because she didn't want to be a mother. So she made that clear and she went to the hospital and got tied so she couldn't have a child. So as soon as Angie said, I'm pregnant, I'm like, oh my God, this could be devastating. So one thing led to another. We talked about it and Penny said, you know, we had done a three-way ceremony where we all made our own vows to each other. So Penny to Angie, Penny to me, me to Penny, me to Angie, Angie to Penny, Angie to Paul. Um, because we wanted this to be sacred to us. We didn't care about, you know, other people's opinions. That's never a good way to live. Especially if it's your mom and dad. That'll always mm -hmm. mean you're still a child. But Penny said, okay, you know... I'll hang in as long as I can. Okay, so that's the beginning of the story. So then what happened is, Angie and I, you know, she's a real shaman. She did a three-year training with Michael Harner, and she's an advanced trained shaman, not a kind of fluffy shaman. She's highly trained. And, and her and I did a lot of medicine ceremonies and drumming and rattling, and we do a lot of painting together and... And we would do a lot of meditation and chanting in the sauna for long periods of time. And we were vaporizing a lot of tobacco and things like that. And so she didn't realize she was pregnant during this whole time until she started feeling off and something was unusual. And she just had this weird sensation she was pregnant. So she tested and sure enough. So what happened is during the period up until the time she did the pregnancy test, we were doing a lot of ceremonies and a lot of medicines and a lot of, um, why so many ceremonies leading up? Uh, it's just, we, part of my healing when I went through my midlife crisis is I would do a ceremony every weekend and I would usually fast the day and do medicine work. And, and I have a system that I developed for preparing myself and I had a lot of pain I had to heal. And I found that the, different medicines were very helpful like mushrooms can be very very helpful and I didn't realize it at the time but I also still had a lot of pain from when my brother committed suicide which yeah. I thought I'd healed but I hadn't and Angie helped me heal that and so um, it was just me going through my healing and it was her supporting me in that process and also getting a lot out of it herself but the thing that happened is she ended up having a miscarriage and so that was very traumatic for her too, right? And so, you know, I was like, whoo, I got to be Dodge careful. Dodge the bullet. <laughs> I was like, yeah, how do I get through this? Because if I express myself to her that I'm, right. that I'm happy, then I'm in trouble because she's really unhappy. Penny was sad for Angie, but like me, relieved because, you know, it's like, okay, we don't have to be parents again right now yeah. and let's in other words it was kind of one of those paradoxical moments where there was the sadness because of course that male part of me wants to know what my child with this beautiful woman angie was going to be like yeah and so we worked through it well then she ended up getting pregnant again and she had 
what's called a chemical pregnancy, which I'd never heard of before. But basically, it's she thought she was pregnant and she had all the symptoms of being pregnant and she even passed a pregnancy test. And then she had a, a miscarriage again. But it, I can't remember the details of what a chemical pregnancy is. She explained it all to me at the time. But then she went through sort of the miscarriage experience again. And I'm monitoring Angie's cycle very carefully, her menstrual cycle. And I've studied it. And so I'm really being careful not to ejaculate inside of her when she is fertile. And she's giving me feedback. And, and I can tell too because there's a change in the thickness of the mucus and there's change in their body temperature. There's ways you can tell. So after the second time, I'm like, what is going on? And so I got even more diligent and more careful. Well, lo and behold, she gets pregnant again. So this is like the third time that we're going through this. And I finally said, Angie, something's going on. There is a soul that wants to be our child that refuses to take a no. Mm -hmm. I am like, unless you're tricking me on when you're cycling, she goes, I would never do that. And then, then there's a soul that really wants to be our child. So I said, I'm going to, set up a ceremony and you and I are going to get together and I'm going to do, and I can do this without medicines easily, but uh, I find that particularly when I'm on mushrooms, it makes the ch the channel more open and, I'm, and, and it enhances my clairvoyance. So it's a aid. Um, I just find it helpful. It's, it's kind of like, just like a low dose LSD can really enhance cognition, right? There's a reason Francis Quick Crick was on LSD when he discovered the <laughs> DNA helix, right? And and so I did a proper shamanic ceremony with the intention, and I did uh, my pre-journey art and my prayers and everything to go meet this soul. So once I got into the journey and finished the entry ceremonies, I said to my soul, please connect me to the soul of our new child. And I, you know, my soul knew because she's part of my thinking process. I said... I need to know why this soul wants to be our child. Now, Angie and I had just recently done, every year we do a New Year's mandala. So we paint a mandala and we go into meditation and we wait for visions and we do rattling and drumming and a variety of practices to get the vision for our year. So it's quite a process that we do every year. And Angie painted this beautiful tree and while she was painting this, it was very unusual for her to paint a tree as a New Year's mandala. Like, usually there's something that symbolizes, like my New Year's mandala for 2019 is my uh, Living 4D with Paul Check logo mm -hmm. in a circle. And the circle bursts like the sun. And then there's keywords like wellness, balance, love, the names of key family members. Um, and things that hold my intention for the year. That's more classic. But for some reason, she'd had this very powerful download of this tree. And she painted these beautiful roots, and the tree had gold in it, and it had beautiful little white flowers all over it, kind of like a cherry tree when it buds. Did it look kind of like a tree of life in some way? Well, you could say that, but it, that wasn't... Really, that wasn't the focus. You'll yeah. see in a minute uh -huh. when, I, when I get there. I'm setting you up mm -hmm. for the real mind blower. Yeah, yeah. So this, she painted this beautiful tree, right? And um, 
we're in this ceremony and I connected to the soul and she was a little, probably about 75, 77-year-old um, woman and she uh, was from um, Taiwan, if I remember right, Taiwan. And um, when I met her, she was in a rocking chair in a grass hut with a dirt floor. And I first thing I said to her is, what is your name? And she said, my name is Bahuan. And I said, oh, nice to meet you, Bahuan. I said, why is it that you want to be our child so bad? And she was holding a cup of tea, a little kind of Asian small cup, you know, like Chinese. Just like a ceremonial teacup. Like a ceremonial mm -hmm. teacup. And she's rocking in her chair and she says, every day I drink my tea and I meditate and I go and I watch the world. I look and see. And she said, Paul, and then she began to give me visions and she showed me that um, her whole family had been shot and killed by a communist regime and that she was forced to farm their farmlands that was the family's farmlands pretty much by herself um, and that they had to give all everything they raised to the government and they just got to keep enough to survive off of kind of like the way the Chinese took over the Tibetans and um, and she said I've been watching you for a long time she says I agree with everything you teach. And she said, I've chosen you as my parents because it's time for me to come back to the world and help. She said, there are big changes coming in the earth. Yeah. And she says, I can drink tea from anywhere in the world and just by the taste, I can tell you exactly what is missing in the soil, what minerals or what nutrients. She says, I can tell you what's in the plant, what, what healing properties it has. She says, I'm an expert at the earth and the water and plants. I've spent my whole lifetime and many lifetimes as a farmer. And she says, I have skills that are going to be needed on earth. And I've chosen you and Penny and Angie to remind me of my knowledge and to remind me why I'm here so that when the time comes, my knowledge will be reactivated. I just got chills from this. Oh, it gets and it much was better. Thailand, not Thailand, Taiwan or Thailand. It was Thailand, uh, Taiwan. Taiwan, Taiwan. Okay, because I was in Thailand. So yeah, when you wrote me the email, you were thinking of a different place. Yeah, probably. I mean, no, still, still I, Asia. I, yeah, no, I get it yeah. mixed up. It was Taiwan. Taiwan, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what did you feel in that moment when that? Oh, happened? it gets better. <clears throat> wait, wait around for a minute. So I'm, and then she says, "And I want to fly. I want to fly in an airplane." Well, Penny's a pilot. And she knew that. She goes, oh, I, cool. I, she says, I see Penny flying. I want to fly. And she says, I want to learn to ski. And Penny's a ski instructor. And she was, you know, I want to, I want to, I think she said, I want to go to Disneyland. She knew of all these things that she'd never gotten to do. And so she was telling us all these things, but she really wanted to learn what I teach at the Institute and holistic lifestyle coaching. And, and she was saying that she, she really loves my philosophy of spirituality and, you know, kind of a non-religious but deeply spiritual approach so she was just going through all these things and it was very emotional for me um because now i realized why she kept getting pregnant this was 
something bigger than myself. I was being called by this soul to be a guide, an embassy to bring her back into the world to do world work. And I was chosen and Angie and Penny were chosen because we had exactly the right skill set to fulfill her needs to contribute to the world, but also to fulfill her own desires to express herself because she had lived many lifetimes of hardship where she didn't get to do a lot of the things that in the afterlife she's watching people do and wishes she could do that. So, so here's where it gets interesting. I said, after the ceremony was over, I said to Angie, I said, use your phone or, or your computer and go on one of those Google translators and see what Bahwan means. So she does, and I'm standing right there, and it pops up. The translation is white flower, and then it showed an image of the exact tree that Angie painted for her New Year's mandala to the freaking letter. Same colors, same flowers. It was as though Angie had downloaded it and painted it so perfectly. It was like Angie's painting was a photograph. And then we clicked on the link with the tree, and it said... Uh, Taiwan National Flower, the White Flower, the National White Flower Festival, and it ended the day that I was doing the ceremony. It was a three-day national ceremony, and the very day I did the ceremony was day three of the yearly ceremony for the White Flower tree, and that's what Angie had painted. And we're like, wow, this is powerful as hell. And Angie was saying while she was painting, I don't know why I'm painting this, but it's just showing up so strong inside of me that I just have to paint it. And so the other thing that I, I didn't want to look at, but my previous assistant, Vidya McNeil, is a very skilled artist and very good at art therapy. She kept seeing that... There was babies coming into my life. She said, I see two children coming into your life. And I'm like, no. In fact, one time I even tried to change a painting because I didn't want that. I was like, <laughs> I don't see that. And so Vidya was actually seeing this because uh, there was a time that I was in a relationship with Vidya as well. And, and Angie and I were, and Penny were, were you know, co-relating. And um, so the profundity, the profound experience of this was just mind-boggling. And mm. then I continued, and I still do to this day, converse with White Flower and talk to her. And sometimes when Mana, you know, is unruly. And I thought, because this is another mistake I made, because all my conversations with White Flower were with a woman, I inherently assumed that she was coming back as a woman. So when we and I was, you know, talking to this little baby in the womb, thinking it was a girl, and thought, oh, I'm going to have a girl, and I was all excited. So then we go for our 20-week ultrasound, and the lady says, you have a little boy. And I said, are you sure? She said, well, that's a penis. I just talked to a lady in a chair. Are you sure? <laughs> and she, not only, she goes, that's a penis. And she goes, and it's a good size one, too. <laughs> like, yeah. Had a boy. He had a good boy. And so... What I what then once I found it was a girl I felt mystified I'm like how in the world did I screw it up so I went back to White Flower and I said I thought you were going to be a girl she says oh no that's much too tough a life she says I'm going to be a guy this time it's much easier 
<laughs> I said, I get it. I get it. Oh and, my gosh. This is, I mean, to me, like hearing your story, it, it talks about the fractals we experience ourselves in. Yeah. You know, your story, having Angie paint the exact tree. I mean, what the hell? The odds yeah. of these things happening. And, yeah. and it's a testament to the work you've done. I mean, yeah. How many years have you actually been doing spirit medicine? Like going into these realms, learning, and then honestly, going from the 4 and 5D, bringing those lessons back here to the 3D. Well, you know, I was indoctrinated into the concepts of meditation and the practices of meditation when I was 12 through the Self-Realization Fellowship. And I used to get into some pretty damn deep meditations. Even now, as tell a kid. me, the, the original Czech Center was on Vulcan. Yeah. I still see the sign up there. Yeah, because yeah. a couple of our previous instructors, our first two instructors, still have their studio there. Yes, which is walking right to SRF. Yes. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the neat things because I was close to the meditation gardens. And and then when I was 15, I went to summer camp for the summer with the Self-Realization Fellowship monks at the Lake Shrine Center in Los Angeles. And their headquarters is a, a place called Mount Washington in Los Angeles. So I spent the summer with the monks going deeper and learning. And I was able to get a lot of great training and a lot of healing from the Christian concepts that as a child can be very disheartening and scary. And so I had to kind of clear a lot of that confusion out of me because it used to frustrate me and I couldn't get questions answered, but the monks were just amazing. You know, they they were so grounded and so peaceful and so beautiful. And I felt so safe with them. You know, it was the opposite of this hell and damnation kind of, <sighs> well, it all has a function, but it served its function in me and the function was I needed to get it healed and thank God for my mother finding a place to do that. And she was a yogi for most of her life. For Yeah, she followed Self-Realization Fellowship teachings and, and devoted herself to at least an hour a day of meditation for 24 years before she began exploring all other philosophies. Um, but she ultimately came back to SRF after several years of exploring others because she just felt like Yogananda's teachings were the creme de la creme for her. Do you remember your very first medicine experience, what that was like? Well, my first medicine experience, so what I was saying is that I had done a lot of meditation. And then even prior to uh, the use of medicines, I was doing some research actually in the field of uh, martial arts. And I have a three-volume set that's like a, a documentation of some of the greatest martial arts teachers in the world and 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 their spiritual orientations. And it listed the um, lineage of ancient masters of Tai Chi. And lo and behold, there was one that was still alive and he lived in San Francisco and his name was Fong Ha. And I went, holy smokes, there is an actual bona fide recognized master, not just a guy who's good at it, who got some training over there or someone who moved over here that used to do a bunch of, you know, there's all sorts of stuff out there, mm-hmm. but the real deal. So I did some research and tracked this guy down and I gave him a phone call and said, look, I'm writing a book and I really feel that even standard approaches to Tai Chi are problematic because it takes a couple of years before people stop thinking about their form. And I've done a lot of work with people and they still can't get out of their heads would you be willing, could I hire you to teach me? So I, Because I need someone to guide me into a deep inner experience of Tai Chi. He was also a Qigong master. I'd studied medical Qigong as well and did a certification course in that. So I'd practiced a lot of that, which I found was very good. So when I went and saw Fong Ha, he gave me my first gong practice. I stayed with him through three gongs and then I felt 
which is three 100-day practices. And then I got open so much. I mean, it was just so powerful and so beautiful. And my intuition and my clairvoyance came on really strong. I mean, I've always been clairvoyant since I was a kid, but it just got really strong to the point where you can verify this with Penny and Angie. She would give me gifts for Christmas or something, and I can just hold the box up to my third eye and tell you exactly what's in it because I can see right through it. And I'm also a remote viewer, and I won a remote viewing contest with 750 people in it taught by the CIA's remote viewing director. What is a remote viewing? A remote viewer is someone yeah. who can actually take their consciousness out of their body and go anywhere in the known universe or the world and actually identify. So in the military, they use them to find Russian submarines or things yeah. like that. And that skill came on when I was uh, 12. I started having um, out-of-body experiences and I learned that I could control it. And I started testing myself to see if I was just having um, hallucinations or was it real? So I would travel around. We had a 140-acre farm and my father would leave tools all over the place. And so I would actually travel around and I'd say, okay, over behind the barn, there's an ax and a McCullough chainsaw. And then in the morning, I'd get up to go check. And sure enough, it was there. And so I would start practicing and going and looking for like key things that I could identify, that I could then verify, that I didn't know before. So you're proving it to yourself. I had that to prove it to identity myself. was working. Yes, that, that I wasn't just cracking up <laughs> am i crazy or is this real well you know i lived in a very very stressful home environment uh, my father i think i talked to you about this before is a very brutal man yes yes and so and you worked many jobs like in tandem of you understanding these powers and these these concepts you had to still deal life's responsibilities like I, shit was real yeah no very real and and my father was not a man you say anything to except <laughs> yes sir <laughs> unless you want to have your teeth for lunch yeah uh or worse uh, and so the pressure of, of seeing all of us getting beat up and my mother getting slapped around and just the parents fighting over money, I just wanted to die, really. I just didn't know. I just I used to just get so upset at God and say, mm. why am I here? I'm just, this is yeah. not, I didn't come here for this, you know. So that's a whole other story. But the, the point is, is that I'd had a lot of these experiences. And so by the time I got to Fong Ha, I had already been through training with monks. I'd already spent a lot of time meditating, but I knew I needed to go deeper. And I knew that when I wrote my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, I had to figure out, I knew in my heart and soul that part of my function on this planet was to create a concept to help people balance working out. But I knew people in our culture have a hard time meditating as it's traditionally done because they're too, you know, their heads are like buzz bombs. And... So that process not only took me very deep into myself, but it gave me exactly what I was looking for so I could develop the concept of working in, which yeah. is really something that I pioneered. Now, there's lots of that kind of stuff in Asian and foreign cultures. It's not called working in. It's called, you know, Tai Chi or spiritual practice or, you know, Chinese medicine or various other elements of it. But I needed to juxtapose our ass kicker concept with something that was healing something that was parasympathetic dominant not sympathetic dominant so i went through the uh training with fong ha and then i got to the point where i had what i needed and i could use that and really at that point it was just a matter of practicing right sure he could give me more techniques but i i didn't need more techniques i needed to drill into the ones that i had because any one of them can take you all the way 
And so then I began working with my soul to figure out, well, how can I create a class of movements that correlate to imbalances in the psychophysical structure of the chakra system so I can organize a way that someone can do my questionnaire and identify, okay, you've got high inflammation in your small intestine, therefore you're going to need to do the work in exercises to bring cooling and healing energy through the third chakra. So I took my training with Fong Ha and my inner experiences, and then I mapped out using my knowledge of the glandular system, the vascular system, the nervous system, the arterial, arteriovascular tree, basically, and how it's distributed through the body. And so I used the physiology of the chakra system to create movements coupled with breathing and emptying the mind to bring blood flow and conscious healing energy into these key areas. But I was using the basic principles that Tai Chi was built on. And I read many books on the history of Tai Chi and Qigong and uh, the masters. And I got down to the kind of nuts and bolts basics of what Tai Chi was really all about. So I, I had the academic understanding. I had the experience of it. And so... I had been doing the Tai Chi and Qigong and meditation practices. And what I did is I, I normally didn't do both on the same day because it just wasn't enough hours in a day. When I started with Fong Ha, I committed to a one-hour practice every day. And a gong is 100 days straight. And if you miss a day, you have to start over from one. So I was very diligent not to miss any days. And so I did three 100-day practices uh, in three different techniques that he taught me. And then on the third technique, I kept going, and I think I did uh, multiple, maybe three gongs. It's been a long time now. That was around 2000, 2001. And so that was part of my research. So it was 2006 when I got had my first introduction to psychedelic medicines other than marijuana, which I'd experienced a number of times as a kid. It was my, my kind of play toy Everyone else liked alcohol. I didn't like alcohol at all. I liked pot. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, I was working with Danny Way quite a lot. And um, him and his brother had gone to this doctor that uses psychedelic medicines in his healing work. And they'd done a DMT ceremony with him. And it just completely just blew Danny's mind in a very beautiful way and helped him have a much deeper understanding of what God was and helped him reconcile a lot of his own pain. And he just got a hold of me, and I think he texted me and said, I got to talk to him. So he got a hold of me and said, you've got to go try this. He says, you know, I know this is probably not really the kind of stuff you're into, but trust me, this is really mind-blowing. And his brother, Damon, who had also rehabilitated from a bad brain injury, said, Paul, you got to do this. So I said, well, you know, these are two guys that I trust, and I've spent a lot of time with these guys. Yeah. <clears throat> so I took uh, Penny and... A few others I won't mention because some of them are famous and I don't know if they want to be mentioned. Um, but we went down for our first ceremony and, and that was before the days of vaporizer. So this is, you know, straight DMT out of a glass pipe and, and full hit. And man, I had an unbelievable union with God. I mean, it just, mm. I had a full on, you know, two zero, one with and... I must have cried five gallons. It was so powerful. I mean, this is like a huge inflection point for you because the Institute probably took a massive turn towards different varieties of education Not from, really. from that moment. No, no. All it did was confirm that it was on the right path. Ah, so it was confirmation. It, it was a major confirmation. Yeah. No, it was, there was no, 
um, zigzag except for people's opinions about me using psychedelics, which, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, they attack me for Swiss balls. They attack me for the way yes. I dress. They attack me for going vegetarian. I mean, I get attacked all the time. So I've, I'm kind of used to the flies buzzing, you know, but, uh, you know, as Einstein said, great, mild, great minds always meet violent opposition from mediocre minds, yes. and that's just a fact. Uh, and I'm not trying to brag, but uh, I think my, my resume speaks for itself. Um, so the experience was so profound. The first thing that happened when I opened my eyes is I said, can I do that again? And there was like, eight of us and we were doing a circle ceremony and he said well yeah as soon as these people are done now right that night i watched several people have a very hard time and what i realized right there in my first ceremony it was because of all the tai chi and the meditation and the spiritual training and the work and the work on managing my own mind that i was able to pierce the veil on my first try but i saw lots of things happen some of them scary right and so what I did was I, I said to this guy, I said, look, I'm willing to pay you if you will train me on how to use these medicines because I knew that there was a lot of people I work with that could be really helped. And so he said he knew who I was because I had been working with Danny at the same time as him. So he was the chiropractor doing his stuff on one side. I was doing the therapy that I do. And normally I'm kind of suspicious of that because oftentimes what other doctors and therapists are doing are screwing up what I'm doing. So whenever I take someone on like that, I make them agree that I'm the case manager. So it all gets filtered through me or I end up having to deal with nightmares. Mm -hmm. And I've always done it that way because I've had so many of those nightmares. But the one thing I noticed is that every time Danny came to see me after seeing this guy, his body was working better, not worse. So I said, whatever this guy's doing, it's working and it's not conflicting with anything I'm doing. He knew who I was and he said, yes. He says, I don't normally do that, but for you, I will. In fact, you know, he was having some body problems and he said, I'll tell you what, if you work on me every weekend, because he knew I travel up that you're in town, then after you work on me, I will do a ceremony for you and mm. I'll train you in the use of the different medicines. So for one year, exactly. I think we did about 40 to 40, maybe 42 journeys on a wide variety of different medicines, all at very high doses. He's a high dose guy. He's like, you know, knock the ego out of the ballpark. Mm -hmm. And so I did several different variations of DMT and I did uh, various versions of LSD and I did um, San Pedro and I did... Um, uh, mescaline, and I did uh, different types of mushrooms. We did all sorts of stuff. So I really got an exposure. And, and while we were doing that, I was attending his ceremonies as an assistant to him. So I saw a lot of the struggles people went through. And I actually learned a lot of the things that he did that I thought was not how I would like it done. And so I really got to see a lot of trouble and a lot of the ways that that people weren't being qualified for dose, there was no preparation. It was just his whole yeah. philosophy is your karma is to be here. This is the dose. Go. Whatever happens, happens. And that's kind of a based in Eastern concepts. I understand that approach, but it just is dangerous for me and I couldn't buy into it. 
which was perfect because it led me to developing an entire system for preparing people, processing them, doing post-journey integration, how I manage them in the ceremony. And I've never had anybody get hurt at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've had a lot of people come to me from all over the world very broken. Yep. So the point I'm driving at here is that all that came together and I continued doing my Tai Chi, Qigong, and meditations through all this. So that was 2006. Then I got my Medicine Man Spirit Guide license through the Native American Council because the first thing Penny said, you're going to need to get some kind of legitimate... Is that a pretty serious process to get the card? No, it's not at all. It, it, they, they have a course of training that you have to do, but basically you can do it at your own pace. In their system, once you sign up, you get your license, but you're responsible to continue the training and finish it on your own. But what, what I did is I called the, the, the chief of the organization, a man named Cloud Piler, and I gave him links to my websites and access to a lot of the stuff I did. And he said, Paul, the work you've done is just way beyond what we teach anyhow. He said, it's just a waste of your time to go through this program. You're, in fact, he asked me if he could have access to my program for his people. Mm. So I was going to set up a, a, a discount rate for all the members of this uh, organization, the Native American Council, so they could study my PPS Success Mastery Program and things like that. So basically, I got grandfathered in, but it gave me a legitimate federal license to use um, any natural medicine as long as I do it in accordance with the Native American ceremonial process. And it can be anywhere because that's where your guidelines exist is through the card. It can be anywhere as long as it's in a safe space doesn't have to be on Native American land. No, no, no. It can be anywhere. It's a federal license, so it's anywhere in the United States. I, I can't. That won't protect me in England or somewhere like right, that. Right. Um, and there's a whole story as to how that whole system got built. But basically, the guy that founded it used to be a naturopathic physician that got put in jail because he was healing too many people of cancer naturally. But the judge that tried his court case realized what he was really going on, but had to put him away because the laws required it but the judge actually saw he was doing a lot of good so the judge actually came to him and said um i'm paraphrasing but the judge said i'm going to put you in a prison that needs your help and and what i'm going to do is support you you go to the prison and work as a doctor in the prison for the four years that you're in there or whatever and what i will do when you get out i will show you how to create legislation to create a body so that people can do what you do and can practice and use medicines legally because you're in accordance, and he was, he's a Native American uh-huh. Indian, this guy, in accordance with law. So the judge had empathy for him and then helped him set up the Native American Council so that he could conduct healing ceremonies without being illegal. But he couldn't do it, you see, as a naturopathic physician, the way he was doing it, because there's no structure for that in medicine. Yes, right? we live in a crazy time because there's so many people doing medicine yeah but yet there's also the danger of people doing medicine and having them take a very wrong path oh my god it's right so so much there People's you know living that, that could be 14 like podcasts <laughs> just you know? in that its own i've i've i wouldn't doubt if i've now counseled and worked with at least 30 people that have had their lives turned inside out by poorly run yeah. medicine ceremonies and not knowing what they're taking well let's talk about that because it's not for everyone this is a very sacred unique yeah. plant that yeah. has tremendous power of which people are still understanding you're still a student of the plants always you're always a student the day you're <laughs> you not a mastery student, the day the day that you're not a student is the day that you're going to 
you know, meet your shadow and <laughs> glaring form, but you'll call it Satan or something else. Well, and, and I love this because I wanted to know, and thank you for sharing all this about your history with this richness of the medicine. Like, I knew a little bit of your story there, yeah. but seeing the connection to the woman in Taiwan yeah. and then your training in Qigong yeah. and then the SRF. And now here we are in 2019. How yeah. do you see this unfolding into the curriculum with the Czech Institute in the future? We, we are going to talk about your four doctors, which I want to dig into, but sure. well, how the, is that going to unfold now? Well, I, I can't put that into the curriculum, really. Um, the only thing that I can do is if I do a ceremony at Rhythmy or a place like that would agree to let me do that. But when I do these ceremonies, there's a lot of preparation. For example, I don't think Mike would mind me sharing this. Um, I wouldn't take Mike on in a, into a ceremonial process for two and a half years because I felt Mike needed the training in mental, emotional self-management and mastering four doctor basics and learning how to manage his own emotions and his mind more effectively before I took him into a ceremony. Because if a person doesn't have any mental, emotional self-management skills, then a medicine ceremony can be a real ball buster. And, a, and, and depending on the dose and the environment, a person can literally, um, well, to put it in a cliche term, crack up. They can lose their sense of who they are. Exactly. They can become ultimately schizophrenic. They can have multiple personality disorders. And I could give you all the technical lingo, but it, it's, that's not important. Just basically, it fractures the soul. The person, when I look into the, when I use my clairvoyance and look into the fields of people that have had these kinds of problems, which um, which you and I are familiar with, it looks very similar to if you took a rock and threw it at the mirror in the bathroom, how it would just fracture into pieces and pieces would fall out and there'd yeah. be black holes where the back of the mirror is showing through and there's no glass. So it's as though, if you imagine the soul as a circle within which is this beautiful mirror and all of a sudden someone hit it with a hammer, the medicine experience is so strong for some people and it brings up so much of their unconscious that, the, and because of, especially when you have Christian or, or traditional Abrahamic religious programming where you have all this polarity in you about God and the devil. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, then you all of a sudden are in a medicine ceremony and you're coming face to face with the fact that maybe you'd been sexually abused and you didn't realize it, or you'd been a, a sexual abuser of somebody else, or if you'd abused people violently or you went against the Ten Commandments and you were sure you were going to burn in hell, well, you, you can't tell the difference between a thought and reality when you're deep on a medicine. So you yeah, actually live the experience. So if a person does not know how to manage that and, they, and, and someone hasn't processed them to see how much stuff there is hiding down there in the unconscious, then going to a medicine ceremony is really taking the lid off a of Pandora's box. And what I see going on is tons of ceremonies with no effective preparation, no flight training. I call that flight training, learning how to manage yourself in the journey, and no post-journey integration. And people going from one dose to more to more. I mean, I'm like, I've had people come to me that have done, started off with two days of ayahuasca, added a third day of ayahuasca and then put LSD in the mix. And then by the third or fourth day, they're bringing out the DMT. So now they're doing ayahuasca, LSD, and DMT together. And LSD and ayahuasca... I mean, it just sounds like a drug th party. They're, well, the thing is, is they're, they're going in opposite directions yeah. energetically. So you got one drug that's totally yang, 
and lifting you up out of yourself. And then you got ayahuasca that's very yin and pulling you back into yourself. So the next thing you know, you have this kind of chemical war going on inside of you. And that mirrors itself in your psyche. So people get just, it's like, you know, drinking Drano and it just guts you. Oh my gosh. I can remember being in a ceremony recently. Ayahuasca or medicines in general, they bring up so many truths, yet it's it's really sharpening the intuitive sword in the ceremony with the work we've done before yeah. that allow us to have our soul tell us what's really true or not. That's the deep question when it comes to medicine. Yeah. So it's a very complex issue because first of all, until a person actually knows how to access their soul, they can't tell the difference between their soul and their mind. And the mind is actually inherently part of the soul. So, the you know, the soul is not as simple as people think. The soul's got levels to it, you know, without giving you a long expose of the soul. But in a nutshell, I use Steiner's model of the soul because I found it to be very complete. Steiner says anything with an inside or an, and an outside has a soul, which begins at an atom. So in Steiner's model, souls have atoms, and anything that is not biological, like a plant or a living organism or a human being, has a mineral soul. So his class, the soul begins as a mineral soul on this planet. Then through the process of biological life, everything that emerges from the mineral kingdom, i.e., you know, single-celled organisms, for example, in the ocean, have a biological soul. So the biological soul now is not only regulating energy and information in form, a rock has form, um, the planet has form, any you know, sodium chloride is a molecular combination of atoms that makes sodium chloride, right? So there you see there's form. That's why you can recognize the sodium chloride molecule and chemists can draw it out for you. Um, but then you go to the biological soul and so each level of the soul gets more complex and it can transfer more energy and information because it's actually beginning to have a more comprehensive, shall we say, thinking process, awareness process would be a more accurate term. Um, you know, even a single-celled organism has awareness of what it wants to eat and what it needs to survive, so it moves towards food. If you look at basic biological texts, they say a cell moves towards pleasure and avoids pain, and pleasure is the right temperature or the right environment for it to it thrive, and, and pain is anything that threatens its survival. And so that's the very basis of our what's called the negative bias, which is our nervous system's constant looking for threats in the environment because at the biological level, that's a reality for survival. So the biological soul then evolves in the human being and in some primates uh, and dolphins and whales and creatures that have enough brain power to the intellectual soul, which is then the um, soul's growing its own mind. In other words, a plant is fused in in what's called a group soul most animals are in a group soul so there's like the soul of all lions is guiding all the lions a lion doesn't have an individual sense of self like you or i do all lions have this very same desires and drives and they don't have personality biases in other words you know uh, they don't have egos. Mm -hmm. they, they have the ego of the animal itself, but that's part of the group soul because it's living through all the lions. 
Um, you know, you could find a correlate for that in the human being, but it would just be a correlate because we all have egos and a sense of individuality. And you can tell that we have that because we do things that are destructive to ourselves. You don't see lions, for example, shooting up crack or um, killing so much that there's nothing to eat one day. Right? They they're very tuned and they're actually part of nature. So there's, there's a symbiosis. There's there. a symbiosis, mm-hmm. and and they don't go against that because it's inherently woven into the fabric of lioness, just like wolves and birds and bees have birdness and beeness. But if you give a human ego to any one of those creatures, it all of a sudden can start doing things that are very destructive to itself and to life itself because it doesn't really have a context for determining, neither do humans in, at, at lower levels of consciousness, when it's actually destroying its own survivability, right? So the intellectual soul is really the beginnings of an ego, and the intellectual soul means any idea that the person can access and use or remember. So all of our childhoods are the beginning from the very time we emit the word I or no, that's when the ego is forming. That shows that the child is now differentiating itself from mother, father, food. If, you, if mommy sticks a fork in the child's mouth with roast beef and it doesn't want it, it'll say no and push the hand away it's now aware for the first time that it is not the roast beef and it is not mommy and it can have a choice, so it pushes it away. That's the beginning of the intellectual soul. Prior to that, it's a biological organism, so it lives like an extension of its mother. So the intellectual soul matures to the development of what's called the awareness soul. And you'll see I'm going to tie all this into your question because I'm not just going sideways. Um, I enjoy the, the Czech roundabouts. I think yeah. we all like this, man. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my students often do, unless they're <laughs> too left-brained and then they uh-huh. don't. Um, but I say, well, that's your medicine. Pay yeah. attention to the stories. That's right. Be patient. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason you asked me to teach you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the awareness soul emerges the day we begin to question the validity of our own thoughts. So the day, you, and so there you have classic Byron Katie right? Is that true? Is it really true? How do you feel when you think that thought? Can you turn it around, right? Um, So the day that we realize we don't have to be a Christian, or we question, am I really going to burn in hell for doing such and such? Or uh, is God really an old man in the sky with a bad attitude keeping track of everything? Or is it true that my father doesn't love me? And the list is long, right? So really... Once we begin honestly questioning our own thoughts against the reality that we see, experience, and live, and what's all around us, in other words, questioning our thoughts to find ways to live more fully and be more connected and have less stress and less fear, we have to essentially put these ideas on the scale of truth within ourselves, and the ones that weigh us down and make us feel more disconnected and less capable of experiencing giving and giving love. Those are the ones that have to be run through the, what I call the, the mind flip process. So I developed a system that I use, which is first identifying what your dream is. So whenever someone goes into a medicine ceremony that I've trained, I always say, what is your intention or your dream for the journey? That becomes your, your, your compass. So then you have a thought like, 
I'm evil or I'm a rapist or I'm a murderer or I have been a murderer. And so using the awareness soul and growing the awareness soul says, okay, my intention for this journey was to be as loving and as whole a human being as I can. Does buying into I'm a murderer, I'm a rapist, even if it's true, bring you the capacity to be more loving and whole? No. So even if it was true, what would you do with it right now? So then you have to flip the coin. You just saw the negative, the tails. It does not get you to your dream. So you flip it over. Well, if I was a rapist or a murderer, now I realize how much I love life and how much I love human beings. And I realize that I have that dark potential within me, but I don't have to act it out unconsciously. Now, if you put your awareness there and your intention there, if that was a kite, it's flying straight towards your dream. But if you go with the other one and you believe it just because it came up in your thoughts, now you're going in a downward spiral and it's going to incite more fear and more separation and you're going to be very afraid to talk to people about what you saw in that journey. Yeah. So now you have to conceal more, which means you're growing more shadow. So is it a choice of, in that moment of decision, indulgence in the thoughts that have no corollary to the dream? It's an indulgence. It's almost like a junk food for the mind that's not aligned with the dream. Well, a lot of this is all stuff that's trapped in your unconscious, but you're, that's why it's called the unconscious, because you don't know it's there. You see, whenever you enculturate human beings, you set a consensus norm. So, you know, like tonight, if it starts raining and you decide you want to go dancing out in the foyer there in the courtyard naked and singing... That'll go really well until someone looks out their window and sees Josh dancing naked. Yeah. And then they might call the cops. Why? Because that's out of the consensus norm. And so therefore, they're going to look at you as though you're some kind of a nutcase or you're a drugger or they're going to have some, you know, they're going to check to see if you're out of your mind on something. But, you know, so they do the blood test. They find out you're normal. They say, well, what the hell were you doing? And you say, I simply am celebrating life. It's beautiful. And... There's plants and trees out there, and I just, it's important for me to be honest about who I am. Well, what, what do they do with a guy like you, right? Okay, so he was, wasn't drunk, he wasn't stoned, he was simply enjoying life. But the problem is, is if everybody starts doing that, well, people will be having way too much fun, and nobody knows what to do with that level of connection in a culture that's this entangled in its own shadow. So, and is full of. Christian values. I mean, this is a Christian culture. So essentially what I'm saying to you, you have gone out of the consensus norm, but the sad part of it is, is almost every spiritual master, every great mind, every genius, every uh, pioneer of anything is out of the consensus norm, right? When I first started introducing Swiss balls to the gym industry, people looked at me like I was a moron, told me I was gay, um, called me all sorts of names and, uh, you know, basically attacked me. And I used to toy with them and say, oh, well, if you're such a freaking superhero, then come over and do what I just did. And none of them could do it. And mm -hmm. then they all of a sudden had this awe of reverence, like <laughs> after they fell on their head, <laughs> how did you do that? You know, like I used to do front squats with 135 pounds on top of Swiss balls for reps. And they would like, you make it look so easy. It's because I practice. Try standing on it. Well, they couldn't even kneel on the damn thing. But the point is, I got attacked for years, but now there's people all over the world. I walk into the yeah. gym, they don't know who I am. They don't know I'm the guy that freaking brought the concept in. And then the trainers come and tell me I'm doing dangerous stuff on a Swiss ball. And I'm like, um, 
you think? <laughs> <laughs> so the truth goes through opposition, especially when the truth is profound. Exactly. Pro- profound yeah. truths and go through more opposition. And the pro- more profound it is, the more of departure it is from the consensus norm. So to yeah. get back to the medicine issue, whenever you're indoctrinated into any culture, and this goes all the way back into tribal societies, you have to be indoctrinated into their mythology. And whether they are conscious of their myth does not matter. Our myth today is consumerism. It's scientific, materialistic consumerism. So what we do today is because we don't have an effective myth, we don't have effective ways to connecting to source or soul. Everyone has to go through a church or through a temple or through a Bible or through a rabbi or through a priest, which is Middle Ages outdated, you know, antiquated mythology. So because our myth is outdated, it's causing lots of problems in our culture, which is a, a culture is a bunch of people doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Arnold Mandel's uh, definition of culture. So what happens is by the time somebody comes to do a ceremony, they have all this repressed material. And what, what happens is when you're enculturated, so dancing in the rain becomes a taboo. But what if you love dancing in the rain? Well, now you have a choice. Dance in the rain and just risk dancing in the rain, i.e. risk going into the gym with a big colored ball, or you say, I'm afraid to do that because I might get in trouble. Well, then you say, I want to do art, but I want to paint naked people having sex. Well, the first time you do that in school or in class or show that to your mother, oh my God, what are you doing? Don't you ever paint something like that. They'll probably tear it up right in front of you, burn it and spank you. Well, now you're afraid to touch color and paint anymore, but inside of you is a Picasso, metaphorically. So now you're carrying all this guilt and shame, but there's a part of you that's so in love with expressing itself creatively that you can't express. Well, that's buried down in your shadow. Then you start going through puberty and you've got an erection every three hours that's so stiff you could use it as a dinner bell and you touch that thing and alleviate. One day you find that all of a sudden this thing releases a big wave of fluid and it makes you feel fantastic and someone catches you doing that now you're going through another one now you've got the burnt art and the penis and the whole dancing in the rain well all i have to say is if you understand the fact that the human being is the most creative creature we've ever come across with a tremendously powerful brain that has more neural synaptic connections than there are stars in the known universe and you realize how much we're repressing to fit into a socially contrived ideal that's largely controlled by religious dogma and political objective, what do you see? You see the greatest minds are the ones that are the furthest out of the culture and the ones that are the most attacked. And so by the time someone gets to a medicine ceremony, they got years of repression. Their artistic instinct is repressed. Their sexual instinct is repressed. Their creative instinct is repressed. And if it hasn't been repressed, it's usually only been able to be expressed within the narrow confines of what is acceptable, largely based on parental programming and their immediate social milieu, or what you might call their tribe or extended tribe or their group. then we don't have any effective systems at large for dealing with sexual trauma, emotional trauma, parental abuse, which is very, very high if you read the... Your, the Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate yeah. or, or um, another very deep one, even deeper and, and you know, not that's a fantastic book. By all, no, no discredit to that book, but if you read The Body Keeps the Score by... Um, Basil van der Klok. Basil van der Klok. Yep. 
Then you start seeing how much violence there is in families, in military families, and Catholic families are some of the most violent I've ever seen, paradoxically. <laughs> How's that for... And then, then all the sexual abuse in the church, right? So there's the shadow manifesting itself. Yeah. And what do they do? They label it the devil so they can externalize it and somehow convince themselves that nothing that is labeled evil or of the devil could ever come from God, which, wait a minute, that means there's two gods, right? They, people that are at that level of consciousness can't even do basic math, right? So without getting segued into that, but do you see what I'm showing you? By yeah. the time the average person makes it to their first legitimate shamanic ceremony with plant medicines that basically make the ego porous so the unconscious just flows right up like a fountain and everything you've been stuffing down for your whole life now is dancing live in your perceptual field of awareness and because it's inside of you and because it's real and not only that when the medicine depending on the dose not only do you go into your personal unconscious you go right into the collective unconscious you once you get past about four grams of mushrooms and you start climbing up from there you'll start you can break through the personal unconscious into the collective unconscious i've done 13 grams of mushrooms and i've done nine hits of lsd and i've done numerous very intense dmt and ayahuasca ceremonies and so I've actually been into a state of psychosis and I've hired people to watch over me specifically to make sure that I don't hurt myself or do anything because I felt as a pioneer before I was going to start leading people in healing ceremonies, I had to take a tour of the hell they walk through. And I also needed to take a tour of the heavens that people walk through so that I could be conscious of what kind of an experience a person can have at different doses and what happens when you combine different medicines. So I spent several years taking a medicine and upping the dose one notch at a time until I hit psychosis. And I would keep careful notes and, and even in the journeys I'm taking notes and drawing pictures of the dimensions I'm in and where I'm at. And I've got like probably 80 or 100 journeys with all this mapped out, my prayers, my art, my post-journey integration, so I can legitimately show all the research I did on myself to prepare myself to do this work while also studying shamanism. And then my soul led me into a year of vegetarianism, and I was woken up every morning at 3.45 a.m., like clockwork, no matter how tired I was, and my soul said, get in your car, go to work, and, and I had rattles and drums and my ceremonial pipe and I would do prayers and my soul taught me chants and my soul uh, taught me different drum rhythms and different tealing techniques for using rattles and drums to heal people and stones and crystals and various stones. So for one year I spent from about by the time I got to work it was four o'clock from four o'clock till about eight o'clock in the morning doing meditation, Tai Chi, I did a year of Egyptian sun gazing every morning and every night, which my soul directed me to do. And then I did all these practices. And in these practices, I would go, I would rattle or drum my way in with no psychedelics into very, very, um, well, I would be in different dimensions. And shaman of, from different cultures would come sit with me and say, okay, if you get a patient 
with these kinds of problems. This is ways to handle it. And prior to that, I had years of experience conducting healing ceremonies in my holistic lifestyle coaching program with Dr. Cliff Oliver, who's a great musician and is a sound healer, and also doing them in my private practice, but not so much on a shamanic orientation, mostly um, tapping into that person's soul and asking for guidance and using tuning forks, Tibetan bowls, didgeridoo, flute. Dr. Oliver played the didgeridoo and the flute, drums, rattles. And I was having profound experiences with angels and all sorts of beings and um, different soul guides from their own soul group would come. And so I worked with, and I began seeing people in the afterlife many, many years ago, um, just as a part of what happened to me as I grew spiritually. So what happened is I, I got developed to the level where I had a real good sense. When someone calls me on the phone, say they've been out in the jungle, as soon as they start talking to me, I can pick up their vibration, I can listen, and I can say, okay, I know roughly where you're at. Because those dimensions are fairly characteristic. Like the different hell realms, if you like read Dante or something like that, you can see that these structures are archetypal. They exist in all of our psyches. So they're going into different levels of the psyche. So when you're, to, now to, with that preface to sort of say, when you're in a journey and you've got stuff coming up like that and you've got all sorts of stuff, how do you determine what's real? Well, guess what, Josh? It's all real. It's all real. It's all real. Yeah. Look, there's and nothing it feels that way. There's nothing more real than a, your own internal perception, your own internal experience. Look, if 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 I look at you and say Josh, you're a handsome, intelligent young man, but on the inside you think you're unattractive and unintelligent, and you're never going to be successful. It doesn't matter what I say because your reality is your reality. And until I can somehow support you in changing your perception and seeing yourself and experiencing yourself in a different way, which I will not do until I address the programming that's led you to believe that and the judgment that you've come to based on your own experiences, usually which has to do with relationships with other human beings and programming from childhood, then talking to you is just like talking to a wall. Mm -hmm. It's like telling a drug addict, you don't need those drugs. You, can get, you just do that with Tai Chi. And good food. And yeah. they look at you like, yeah, fuck. Sure, well, and, and what you're pointing at is this programming, literally almost like a cattle prod being imprinted yeah. into someone's soul. Like, this is who you are. And I've had so much profound experiences over the past year. Since I met with you last year, actually. Yeah. To really get down to who that Josh Trent really That's is. That's right. And, and what I found is that he's awesome. Well, the thing <laughs> I too love is, this guy. And, and <laughs> the other thing, too, is, is that all the things you went through to find that guy were yeah. just as real parts of you. And painful. And painful. And if yeah. you deny those parts of yourself, they don't heal. If you embrace those parts of yourself and you conceptually say, wow, you know, like I've had clients that have murdered people. I've had clients that have had sex with animals and carry a lot of guilt with it. I've seen a lot in my sure. career. I mean, I've seen a lot of really traumatized people. I've worked with lots of drug addicts and executives that are making millions of years that are drug addicts and they're trying to keep that under the table. Uh, you know, money does not protect you from the challenges of life at all. Yeah. And people think because you got a lot of money, your life is easier. That's horseshit. That's just social uh, silliness for, for uneducated people that don't know any better. But the, the, the point is, is that every single bit of that is paradoxically what God is. 
Isaiah 45, 7. I create the light and the dark. I create good and evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. I quote that because that's one of the most profound passages in the Bible, and people that are Christian do not like it. In fact, in the last 25 years, they've been rewriting that passage so it doesn't say that. But of course, nobody rewrites the Bible. That's another fundamentalist Christian story. The point that I'm making is God is consciousness itself. What we call consciousness and what we call the pursuit of consciousness through science is completely misunderstood. That should be called conscious of. Josh is conscious of Paul Check talking right now, but it's only because God is God and consciousness is the backdrop upon which conscious of can be experienced that Josh can hear me talking right now. In other words, the soul, I call the soul consciousness within. The soul is really God encapsulated in form. And because we each are unique expressions of the divine, we all have different bodies, we all have different ways of relating, we're all very unique and novel, and even identical twins can be very different in many different ways. So the tricky part of it is, is that, look, if you, a simple analogy that I can use is when someone dies and they're in the hospital, well, the electrocardiogram flatlines. And it goes, and that means hurry the fuck up and shock this guy because he's dead. But the reality of it is when you're alive, your heart is beating. And so you see a positive negative sine wave. Well, that's the flow of life. That's inhalation, exhalation. That's day, night. That's inside, outside. That's spring, summer, winter, fall. I mean, I could break this down mm -hmm. lots and lots of ways, but basically what I'm saying here is that what we think of as thoughts or what we think of as personalities, those are the waves on the ocean of stillness that is reconciled all of that. It is the zero point in quantum physics. It's the zero point field out of which spontaneous emergence of quantum particles, which then become atomic which then become structure, which become mountain stars, planets, and people, all the things that can be weighed and measured, everything in creation has a vibrational resonance. Every single thing can be measured and has vibrational resonance to it from a subatomic particle, which can flash in and out of existence for a short time, to an atom, to a flower, to a child, to a human being, to a horse, to a dolphin, to a whale, to a planet. Look, our heart, the... Uh, the Schumann resonance, which is the frequency of the planet, is 7.83 hertz, which interestingly turns out to be exactly what shaman drum, they drum four beats a second or 888 eight, eight hertz hmm. to bring you into entrainment or hypnotic state. But what you don't realize is they're bringing you into entrainment with the consciousness of the whole planet. So the whole shamanic system is in frequency with the earth which is a conscious living being which we often refer to as our mother mm. okay so the point i'm making is that everything everything in existence is vibration that's dancing on the dance floor of that which is not moving yet moving so fast it's everywhere and nowhere at the same time which is called the absolute the relative can only be experienced as a juxtaposition to the absolute. 
So the zero point or the flat line is the source from which the absolute experiences itself in the relative. So everything that's happening is an expression of the divine, but it's like the waves on top of the ocean, but the absolute has no beginning and no end, and it's the eternal now. But the point I'm driving at is that anything that's moving, you can be conscious of. But if it's not moving, you can't be conscious of it. In fact, all I got to do is inject your eye muscles with a numbing agent and you'll go blind. I don't have to do anything to the eye itself, but the eye is constantly moving in what are called saccades. You can't feel anything unless there's vibration going through the system. Your entire sensor system, smell, touch, taste, hearing, all is based on vibrational sensation, all of which are nothing but frequencies that your nervous system codes and adds information and meaning to. Oh, shit. There's a lot to unpack there, man. Well, I mean, there's so many concepts that are flowing together. And, and really what came for me is you said there is the eternal now. The eternal now. This is the, all about the eternal now. Well, what I'm saying is, is that what we think of as mine, no matter how scary or how ugly it is, is all an expression of the divine. And the, the zero point, the place of emergence of life itself, can't know itself unless it explores all of its own potentials. Yeah. That's why I quoted Isaiah 45, 7. I create the light, that which you can be conscious of, the dark, the ocean from which it all emerges. I create good, that which you perceive in your own philosophy or mind as good, and evil, which is anything that you simply are afraid of or don't like. I heard this concept on the show three years ago from Gay Hendricks. He said, dance with your fear. Yes. Actually dance with it. Yeah. Love your fear, he said. Love it. Yes. And, and at the time, I was not ready to receive that. But most fear is, as Ziegler, Zig Ziglar says, false evidence appearing real. Yeah. Right? It's not legitimate fear. Well, there's rational fear, and there's irrational fear. Well, there's program fear, and there's socially constructed fear, and then there's someone just let a rattlesnake into the room, be careful. That's real fear. <laughs> That's real fear. But yeah. most people think that ropes are rattlesnakes and believe it instead of going over and seeing if the rope is a rope or a snake. And that's just social conditioning. Mm. But the, the, the how this relates to this whole concept of the medicine journey, because I'm certainly not forgetting that, I'm simply saying that everything that you experience in a medicine ceremony is not only your personal trauma and your personal challenges and your personal joys and your personal highs, because all those are available, right? But you're also going into the collective unconscious. So you're actually accessing the experience of every living creature that's ever been on this planet and the planet itself as a living organism. And that is in the field of mind. And we are part of that, just like a cork can't be separate from the ocean it's bobbling in. Well, we're like a little cork. First, we're aware of ourselves, and only 5% of the cork is sticking up out of the water like the tip of an iceberg, and that's the part we think that we're conscious with, but 95% of us, the stuff that makes our cells function and digests and eliminates food and metabolism and, and metabolizes and digests and grows and heals and allows us to do a firewalk, which should burn us, but our mind can overcome that. All of the stuff that happens below the radar, which, you know, you're taking 25,900 breaths a day. 
Imagine trying to remember to breathe 25,900 times while driving your car and while taking jujitsu lessons and while typing on your computer. There's 30 billion billion biochemical reactions a second in the human body. Your unconscious mind is capable of managing 30 billion billion biochemical reactions a second based on Nassim Harriman's uh, uh, he, he's the one that stated that in one of his lectures on consciousness and, and he studies that kind of stuff, I trust him you've got a hundred trillion cells in your body, each of which is made of 100 trillion atoms that's a fucking lot of action and your unconscious mind is orchestrating and managing all of that mm-hmm. what am I saying? I'm saying what we call consciousness is just a little tiny fuzz on top of a massive ocean and when you take a psychedelic medicine the periscope turns the other way now instead of looking around at a bunch of little heads popping out of the water and go there's people here you're going down into the vast expanse of not only your own personal experience and even the stuff before you were conscious like a child and most people's memory doesn't do well past about age six, and that's based on a lot of scientific research. Some people say they can remember stuff from three, but there might be just getting flashes. Mm -hmm. But below about six, we're unconscious of a lot of our life. But we can have a lot of trauma. We can be witness to a lot of parental violence, and we can be sitting in church. And if, I mean, go to any movie that's showing violent movies, and it won't take you but 20 minutes and someone will walk in with a little child even though they're not supposed to be in there and those children are downloading all of that mm-hmm. rape and pillage and violence and they don't know the difference if it's real or not when you start taking medicines all that stuff rises up and it rises up as though it's as real as you laying there on the ground or anything you've ever experienced and that's what i'm in perception is reality So if someone doesn't teach you how to process that and how to convert that into meaning, and the other thing is that whenever you're in that state, you're in a dream state. Nothing in dreams communicate in direct reality. They're all communicating symbolically. So for example, if somebody is on medicines and all of a sudden they find themselves scared to death running from somebody inside of a house and they're running from a being that's made of darkness that has no facial features well in dream symbology everything in the dream relates to you so everything in the dream has something to do with you the dark person with no face is your unconscious it's the part of yourself you're unconscious that's why it has no face we recognize people by their faces i see that face and i go that's josh trent every time unless he's got a twin brother who can do Josh Trent really well. So when we get down into the unconscious, we are now basically dealing with the whole sea of our life experience, but not only our life, all the lives. And if you Mm -hmm. go past that, Mm -hmm. you can get into the cosmic unconscious. And past lives as well. Yes, I've been through many of them, not only by having a regressionist work on me, but going through them specifically in ceremony and out of ceremony just to find out, well, who the hell am I really and why am I here? This is why it's so important to have a captain in the ocean. All these seas you're talking about. Absolutely, that's it. We have to have a captain. There's no way around it. And the seas get high. And you know what? You can't tell by, you know, if if I put a hundred people in front of you that range from fat 
people with pimples to the healthiest, most beautiful Gabrielle Reese-looking athletes, there's not one iota of indicator by just looking at them, meeting them, and shaking their hand, unless you have the kind of abilities that people like me have developed, which is reading energy fields and accessing who that person is through soul connection and using, you know, spiritual skills. But my point is that just because someone makes a lot of money, drives a nice car and, and keeps their house clean and abides by the law is no indicator of what's in Pandora's box because not only are you opening up the person this time, you're opening up all their past lives. Mm-hmm. And depending on the setting, depending on the medicine and depending on what their soul feels they're ready to experience, the combination of those events can create quite a wild experience. And I have been beaten. I have been scratched. I have been vomited all over. I have been shit on. I have been yelled at for hours at a time. People screaming, stop it, stop it, make it go away because people don't want to deal with what's inside of them. They actually come to these shamanic ceremonies going, oh man, we're going to have such a good time. This (laughs) This is is not going to be fun. This is going to be a great party. I'm like, you have no fucking idea. You have no idea. And we can go to such depth in this, Paul. It's like, what an incredible journey you've taken me on and everyone listening on. And now I'm thinking, once we go to this depth and we decide that we've done the work to prepare for this depth, there's stuff that we can do every day. Like, That's the point, There's stuff though. that we can do every single the day. The medicine, look, there's something that I just have to say. The medicines do not give you these visions. Yes, the medicines open you up and the medicines can bring certain gifts to you. You know, people see large snakes on ayahuasca quite a lot or jaguars because first of all the medicine comes from areas where those animals interact with the plants and the animals and the plants are in a family relationship so if you look inside of my head you're going to see my brothers and sisters and mom and dad in there if you look inside the banisteris carpi and the um paganum harmalina well, you're going to see they have a relationship with everything, and those are the things you're having because they're part of the psyche or the soul of those very organisms. If you have a mushroom experience, you're going to see different things, and mushrooms have a different approach. Each medicine has a unique sort of psychic energy and consciousness of its own, okay? So... The key thing to remember is that all psychedelic medicines are amplifiers. They only amplify what's already inside of you. Yeah. So you take three hits of LSD, it's like turning the volume up really loud. And in fact, now everything you've never heard before that you've been stuffing down starts becoming very vocal. This is an amplifier. It's an amplifier. But then before that, and and I have to interrupt you here because I'm thinking about the way that we've gone here. And I understand, and you understand from so many years of work, there are these doctors, there are these ways in which people can prepare themselves for medicine where it doesn't necessarily mean they need to go to the deep end. And so the point is all medicines are amplifiers and the dose determines how far the volume knob goes up and how deep into it goes. So remember I said you turn the periscope down? Well, one hit of LSD is five feet under the water. Two, it's 25 feet. Three, it's 50 feet. Four, you're going to see dragons down there and shit that (laughs) National Geographic hasn't even shown you yet. Yes, yes. You keep going and you're going to meet the creative forces behind the planet and the universe itself. 
and the forces will be so strong that it'll it'll it can tear your psyche to pieces because you're actually interacting with those forces consciously now you're aware of what's happening down there so whatever's inside of you just gets turned up because you can't see it otherwise what's the difference between that and using a magnifying glass to read fine print you can't see it normally you look through a big mag a micro a magnifying glass and oh it says danger do not give to children oh shit i just gave that to my kid fuck okay so the medicines allow us to see deeply into ourselves the experiences that we have like I really realize I can love my wife a lot better. I really realize that I need to work less. You know, when I, I what, one of the things that happened to me when I started doing medicines is I could feel Paul Jr.'s pain because his father was so focused on his career and so focused on making something of himself mm -hmm. that I had justified that because I knew I needed to put food on the table and give him a good education and I wanted to give him the things that I didn't get as a kid like a family that had some money and parents that weren't fighting all the time but the medicine said to me now you know where your son is wounded have empathy for yourself because you did the best you could do have empathy for him he's doing the best that he could do but it's never too late to start that healing process so the medicines don't fix things they bring things into awareness, they make connections, they get neural pathways going, but you have to walk through the door. A medicine plants a seed, but you have to fertilize it and you have to water it and you have to trim it and you have to protect it every day or you have just gotten high or had mm -hmm. a bad trip, but you haven't had a spiritual experience. You have not entered the world of spiritual practice or true spirituality. So the key point I want to close that concept with is medicines don't fix you. They illuminate where the healing is and they show you what the possibilities are, but you have to walk through the door and you have to become that person every day. And to the degree that you don't have the spiritual strength or courage to depart from the old you to become the new you which is often very challenging because many people realize for example they don't want to be christians or that they're they don't want to stay in the marriage they've been in for 10 years because they know it's not healthy for them or their kids so they go home and get a divorce or they leave the church and then they get attacked that's where you have to be clear about who you are hmm. that's where you have to have the discipline to stay on track and that's what drives you deeper into prayer and deeper into connection and communion and it's what helps you reach out to other people in the community that are at your level that, that will support you because they're the only ones that understand what you're going through. And they're through. loving and accepting the new you because the new you is going to cost you the old one. You have to let the it's old gonna one It's going to cost die. you the old one. That snake has to shed its skin. And that skin. can be the most painful of all is letting go of the old self. Of course it is because you go through a period of not knowing who you are anymore. Which is fucking terrifying sometimes. It is very terrifying. <laughs> I've been through it several right. times. and. The other thing is the medicines, medicines I find typically leave you open for about three months after a ceremony. So for about three months is as though you're very porous to other dimensions. And so one of the things that's very dangerous is if you do medicine ceremonies too frequently, you can get so open that you can't determine what's real anymore. And you can have so many voices in your head and so many, solid point. so many gods or so many perceptible souls that you're just totally fucking confused. And 
you know, I was able to do that because I have a very strong ego. I was raised in a very violent family where I had to learn to defend myself. I was a motocross racer, a stock car driver, a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. I've done a lot of very intense things where I had to have laser focus and could not let go of the wheel, metaphorically. I had to stay in the game until it was either death or I made it through it. So somebody with that kind, like a Danny Way, for example, Danny's solid as a rock on the medicines because he has faced the devil a thousand times, right? He knows how to deal with anything scary and get through it. So someone like that can do journeys more frequently because they have a very strong sense of who they are and they have a sense of how to navigate choppy waters in many areas of their life. But most of the people running out there are just uh, little children in 20-something-year-old bodies or 30-something-year-old bodies that still rely on mommy and daddy's approval and are still trying to look good and be what everybody else wants them to be. And you throw somebody like that into a situation where they're going journey to journey to journey, yes, and it'll just blow them to pieces. And the next thing you know, they're in a psych ward, and I've seen it happen 20 or 30 times. This is why the medicine calls people. I don't think, and I'd love to hear what you say to this before we talk about the doctors and always wrap up. People don't call themselves to the medicine. That's the ego wanting some kind of challenge. Medicine calls people. Don't you feel that's true? I think it's both ways because really the people and the medicine are really extensions of the same thing. It's all God. Your whole entire visceral system is works on the laws of plant physiology. That's why when people used to be brain injured, they called them a vegetable mm -hmm. because you're now at the level of the autonomic nervous system, which is vegetative. So your liver, your heart, your kidney, those are all law on the principles of the vegetable system. And that's how we connect with plants because we have plants inside of us that operate in the same concepts and frequencies. And we have soil inside of us. We have water. We carry a farm. We're a walking fa a garden. So the point I'm making is, is that the part of us, remember, we have like 18% of the same DNA as a daisy, and we've got 23% of the fruit uh, genes of a fruit fly. And, uh, you know, everything is in a human being. Everything out there is inside of you, and your DNA is an antenna that's tapping you into this stuff constantly. So the point I'm making is the plant kingdom calls to us because it sees and feels our pain, and it has a broader perspective than we do. And we also call to the plant kingdom because whenever we need help, our salvation is its salvation. All you got to look do is look at how destructive people are to nature. Yeah. So nature as a whole is a living organism that recognizes that we are part of it, but that we're children that are wounded and lost and confused. And Mother Earth absorbs the trauma of her children going through puberty. So there's a, it's, you know, if you take the Tai Chi symbol, you could say the black represents the plant and the animal kingdom and the white represents the human consciousness. Well, one needs the other. They can't exist without each other. We are really the tip of the evolutionary sword in this dimension of reality in this space-time domain. So we're calling to each other is what I'm mm. saying. My four-doctor system is a way to categorize consciousness and the life experience into four key categories that you cannot um, ignore because if you ignore any one of them, you'll make so many mistakes it can lead to a very miserable existence. So Dr. Happiness is the domain of mind. And that is, what are my values? When do, you know, if you don't have any values, I say your, your yes has no value till you learn to say no. So for example, my value is I do my very best to only support 
organic farming and organic food because if I put money into commercial anything, I'm actually funding the destruction of the planet, the deterioration of the soils, and the chemicalization of the planet. And those corporations live off our purchases. That's the food they eat, the air they breathe. So there's Dr. Happy. So each of the other doctors represents values. What are my values around movement, Dr. Movement? What are my values around diet and how I'm going to feed myself? And what are the implications of my choices? And what are my values around rest and how I use rest to get the best out of me? Dr. Happy manages the choices with regard to what is happy making for me and what am I willing to do to create happiness in my life? So there's Dr. Happy straight on. How does movement play into my health, vitality, and happiness? So there's your values around movement. How does eating and caring for my body through the use of food and water play into my well-being and accomplishing my dream, goal, or objective? So there's your values around diet. And then how do I, what are my values about getting to bed and using the science of rest effectively with exercise, resting myself from entangled relationships, anywhere the concept of rest is involved has to be conscious as a value. So anyone that is dealing with life, it, you can't be healthy with three doctors. If, you're, if you know what makes you happy and you like to exercise and you eat well, but you are ignorant about rest and you keep staying up late at night, you'll burn yourself out. Mm -hmm. If you know about happiness and rest and eating, but you don't know how to move your body, you'll set yourself up for a lot of problems. There's no such thing as a three-doctor man that's holistic. <laughs> right. And these right. four doctors came from this 30-plus year career that you've drove for the past three decades. I mean, yeah. these principles, before somebody does medicine, these principles are fundamental to all human beings. Those are the principles you have to have because if you mismanage any of those things, it creates stress that you're going to confront in the journey. Well, damn it, Paul, we got to do a podcast on the four doctors the next time we hang out because well, we went deep into the medicine, my friend, this time, yeah, we, which I, I love connecting with you so much. Thank and I, you, I, me I too. love I love the roundabouts you go on. And honestly, man, I love giving you space as an elder. I, I told you this last year at your house. <laughs> I'm you, getting old. <laughs> <laughs> no, you truly are um, a voice of an elder wisdom for people in the wellness industry, people in the health industry. I think we all feel that from you. And just hell yes, Paul Check. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for being here with me in Austin. And next time we'll do a show a little bit deeper on the four doctors. Yeah, man. love to, love to. And you're about to interview a four doctor master right over there, Mike Salemi. He's he's uh he's by far one of the most evolved four doctor managers I've ever worked with. So you're you're you've surrounded yourself with four doctor um beings so and and it's you know i appreciate being um identified as an elder because i wish when i was a young man i had somebody that i could go talk to about anything without being judged yeah and without being told oh you're gonna fuck yourself up you know all this shit that people say to people because they're really just afraid of living um and i really my dream is that young people have a chance to really fully experience life. And, you know, life can be very dangerous and very scary. But if somebody gives you awareness of how to manage yourself, like imagine some teenager who's surfed a couple weeks, hears that there's a monsoon coming, and just because he saw Laird Hamilton surfing a 100-foot wave, he thinks, well, if Laird can do it, I can do it. And the next thing you know, he's drowned and he's dead, right? Well, my point is, 
if Laird Hamilton lived in town and he ran to Laird, Laird would have said, young man, give it 10 years. Let's do some work first. And let me, yeah. let's get you to a 10-footer and a 20-footer because the chances are when you're about halfway up the face of that wave, you're going to shit yourself and you're going to realize I'm in deep trouble. And the problem is a wave that big will hold you under longer than you can hold your breath for. So you're probably going to die in there because when you're on a wave that big, you can't afford to fall off. And so there you see the function of an elder. But a Mm -hmm. Laird Hamilton would not say, don't surf big waves. He would say, surf the waves that you can surf and that are safe to fall on and get hit by until you develop the skills that you can survive these bigger waves. And that's why I say to young people, if you're fooling around with psychedelic drugs or any kind of drugs, you better start with small waves so at least you know what's going to happen to you. But what do they do? They go and take a massive dose of something because their friend did. And so now you just get silliness on top of silliness and that ends up being emergency room visits, death and broken hearted families. And then people are tracking the drugs, but really drugs don't do anything. We, we make those choices. So it doesn't matter what it is. It's just really, um, do we have wise guidance and people that have enough life experience and common sense to guide people effectively? And I think that's what your podcast is for. That's what every podcast that I know of is for, even people like Joe Rogan yes. and, and well, all the great ones. This is always meant to me, and this is how we'll say goodbye, is this concept of intelligence. Yeah. You know, intelligence, is, yeah, it's about gathering it's about applying. Yeah. It's also about embodying. Oh, yeah. And so well, we learn from people who have done the embodying so that yeah. we can do better embodying ourselves. Paul Check, thank you, man. Thank you. Disembodied intelligence is no good to anybody. That's right. Let's so, embody, baby. Let's have fun, too. <laughs> While we that's do what it. I've been doing. That's what we do. We're out. Thank you, Paul Check, for coming on the show. Thanks, buddy. Hey, my friend. Thank you for hanging out and growing with me today. Everything you learn on this podcast starts with your morning practices. So from over 200 world-class guests and counting, we've distilled the gems, the best of the best science-backed practices down into a 21-minute morning system guaranteed to increase the positive flow in your day. Get this free and powerful 21-minute life-changing system over at wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. If you enjoyed this episode, tap your phone, share it with someone you care about because that is how we all get better together. Supporting the show is easy. Leave us a five-star review right now from your phone. It helps us reach other smart and conscious people like you. Either tap your phone and hit the link in purple that says review this podcast or go to wellnessforce.com forward slash review. And this show doesn't stop here. We're continuing the discovering process in our private Facebook group. You can be a part of it. All you have to do is go to wellnessforce.com forward slash group and I'll welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and live your life well. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness 